Welcome to the Aporia podcast. This week, Diana Fleischmann speaks with Professor Amy Wax. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes, along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. Hi, I'm Diana Fleischmann, and I'm here with Amy Wax, who's a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, who is currently testing the limits of the kinds of protections that tenure can offer. Hi, Amy. How are you? Okay. <laughs> Great. So you are just at the, uh, the intersection of a huge amount of conflict going on in the culture right now. And what I really wanted to ask you is um, a little bit about your background first. So you, you have a degree in neurology. You're the only person I've ever heard of who worked their way through law school doing neurology. This is a, an unusual thing. Um, but a lot of your views, I've seen you write a little bit about medicine. A lot of your, and you're also, you said you're married to a medical doctor as well. A lot of your views seem maybe inspired by your medical degree. Um, to what extent has your medical degree given you some of the opinions that you have? Well, I wouldn't say it's given me opinions directly. I think that it's um, made me very empirically oriented. Uh, and uh, it my scientific training has sort of wedded me to uh, a stringent empiricism. That's the way I would put it. When people say things, I want to know what's the evidence, uh, what's the justification. Uh, I think about things causally. Um, I am concerned with proof and with whether things are true or not. So, you know, whether my medical training and my scientific training caused me to be that way or whether I was attracted to science and science fields because that is the way my brain works and that's the way I think about things. Uh, I really couldn't tell you which way the causal arrow goes, but um, that that is my my impulse. Uh, I'm very suspicious of and skeptical of these kind of airy fairy uh, statements that you know are highly dogmatic, uh, and especially the kind of fads and orthodoxies that pass uh, that are you know come to the fore in the current in the current climate and the current era. Um, in my milieu, which is the university, uh, the progressive left, um, orthodoxy, uh, I just, it is my impulse to question it. Uh, and I think it is well-deserving of being questioned. Yeah. I've, I've also noticed that when people, when we say woke, we're talking about a variety of different things, but part of that is many different untested suppositions about how the world works. I remember a few years ago, there was one of the only studies that I've seen, which was looking at uh, Black mothers and pregnancy outcomes on the basis of whether or not there had been shootings in their neighborhoods. And it was unfortunately uh, torn to shreds. It actually didn't really contribute at all uh, to the scientific literature. So every time I've seen stuff like this, which is, you know, d does racism, for example, contribute to uh, various forms of health problems, it's incredibly difficult to pinpoint. It's almost like, you know, racism has these magical properties. Uh, I'm interested in menopause. I, I did a menopause study and black women tend to go through menopause earlier. And this has also been attributed to, to racism. Right. Well, I mean, woke, wokeism, wokeness uh, is a shorthand that stands for a number of different interlocking ideas. It has moving parts. 
But I, I think that Aaron Sabarium, the journalist at uh, The Federalist, is right when he says that the beating heart of wokeism is uh, race, is issues surrounding race. And in particular, the orthodoxy um, most candidly expressed by Ibram Kendi, uh, that racism is the cause of the culprit for all racial inequalities that we observe, and especially uh, for Black Americans, which is the focus uh, of a lot of this attention, because Black America is still very troubled. It's still um, lagging behind in many ways. Uh, and I think there has been an increasingly aggressive movement culminating in wokeism uh, to exclude any possible explanations that attribute responsibility to Black people themselves, or for, for that matter, agency to Black people themselves. Um, I was telling an audience out at the University of Arizona about uh, this new field of economics that in 2006, this Black economist at UNC tried to propose, which is called stratification economics. Um, this is sort of wokeness avant la lettre, although it's been happening for a long time. And what is stratification economics? Uh, well, he puts it in these fancy terms. It's economics that does a, a bypass of any explanation that attributes deficiencies to Black people or underrepresented minorities. Well, in plain English, what does that mean? It means that certain hypotheses are excluded ab initio. They are taken off the table. And of course, any economics or social science that does that, that says, well, certain, certain hypotheses, certain explanations, we can't even consider, right? As we can't even look at or examine. That is not social science. That cannot claim the mantle of science. That is not science at all. That is, I hate religion because it's so hackneyed, but it is orthodoxy. It is something else. So that is the sort of thing I think that is going on all over the place. Now, not just in academia, but in journalism, because uh, journalism gets the spillover from academia. Uh, and, you know, it's racism, racism, racism. That is the explanation for everything. Sometimes I wonder why, you know, they they bother to write a four-column story about something like why black mothers and babies do worse or, you know, any other disparity when we always know the answer, you know, we might as well just, as Darity says, bypass is a good word, bypass all the work and get to the only acceptable answer. Well, one thing that surprised me when I was reading about you in terms of you being evidence-based is, and, and many of the most controversial things that you've said have been about Asians. Asian, unfortunately, is a very loose term. It means South Asians, East Asians. Um, and it's it's quite difficult to pinpoint. Uh, but today, you know, you have talked a lot about how different family structures, um, having children out of wedlock, these kinds of bourgeois values contribute to success. But if you look at East Asians, they actually have the lowest rate of father absence in this country, lower than than whites. And I have been really interested in kind of digging down as to what is your, <laughs> uh, why do you think that there are fewer East Asians should be admitted to universities? Why do you think fewer East Asians should be um, immigrating to our country? 
Well, I mean, first of all, I've, I've only said a few things about Asians in the context of discussions about immigration and what our rates of immigration should be and what our mix of immigration should be. So it's been very much confined to that context. And then another remark that was lifted totally out of a context sort of excised was talking about why Asians vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, even though it would seem that their interests really aren't aligned with Democrats. So that's kind of an esoteric discussion about political preferences and political alignment. I readily concede that Asians are exemplary in many ways. They have many, many positive attributes. No one would ever deny that. But I think that there are many, many dimensions to um, sort of cultural group characteristics that feed into the policies that we should have on the immigration front, on the political front and the like. Um, so, you know, Asians have many virtues. They're quite capable and the like. But they do come from a non-Western culture, a culture that is very different from our own, that, that holds very different values that does not, I think, and this is a broad generalization about a group, really doesn't pertain to particular individuals, but not as much emphasis on liberty, on um, individualism, on um, on kind of innovation and bold, audacious uh um, questioning of orthodoxies balanced with, uh, with their deference to traditionalism. Um, even Asians themselves will admit that, uh, there are differences between them and Europeans, uh, in their outlook and their attitudes and their values and their habits, um, and the like. So this is just you know, acknowledging that there are cultural differences between groups on average, which shouldn't be controversial. Uh, and in fact, the whole diversity industry, uh, which is, you know, overwhelming, uh, would seem to be premised on the fact that different cultures have different mixes of attributes. I mean, if we were all cookie cutter mirror images of each other as groups, then why have diversity at all? So there's there's contradictions here all over the place. Um, none of this is consistent or makes any sense. But once you start generalizing about groups, people people's feathers are ruffled if the conclusions you come to are the ones that they don't like. You know, we have an orthodoxy about immigration, so you can't go up against that. I mean, you can't, being a restrictionist is something that's not really acceptable in academia. So. You know, that's, I think, part of the reason why I've gotten into trouble and people have been outraged um, about it. I mean, I, I admire Asians. I have lots of Asian friends, just as I have black friends. This this isn't about individuals. It's about uh, what we want our country to be like, uh, the attributes and the strengths that we want to preserve, protect and defend um, the importance of our legacy, which is frankly uh, a British Northern European legacy primarily. How much of that do we want to preserve or do we just not care? Uh, issues like whether there's such a thing as magic dirt, to quote Steve Saylor, and I know Bo Weingard talks about this too, that when people come to this country, they lose everything about themselves that is distinctive. I mean, there are a lot of really tough issues here. And all I'm trying to do is 
bring them out into the open. Uh, yeah. But this is the thing. If I could just say one more thing, I think what's going on in academia right now uh, is people do not want to make arguments. They want to ban arguments. The, the left that controls academia wants to ban arguments. They have become the stupid party. It used to be the conservatives were the stupid party. Mm -hmm. uh, but now the tables have been turned and the progressive left is the stupid party because you can't say this and you can't say that, can't discuss this and can't discuss that. Um, there are so many rules and prohibitions that you really can't talk about anything. I, I agree with you that it's unfortunately a taboo conversation to talk about who can be good stewards of nations and democracy and complex systems that we need. Um, it's an unfortunately taboo conversation to talk about whether or not, you know, everybody should vote or has an interest in voting. I know that some countries that have uh, mandatory voting have certain problems because the populace is just not very interested in educating themselves. And the idea of, you know, can anybody who immigrates to this country be a good steward of the systems that we have in place? Are they going to support those systems? That's taboo for two different reasons. One is because it questions that people are similar uh, across races or ethnicities in their orientation towards what you would call liberty. Uh, but it also is taboo because people don't even want to say necessarily that our systems in the United States are necessarily good or necessarily have provided the peace and security and liberty that, that we all enjoy. Um, but to kind of try to dig down and operationalize liberty, you specifically talked about how Asians have voted more democratic than other groups. And I did look into this actually because many Asian groups are actually less uh, lefty than I thought they would be. So for example, um, Indians and Japanese tend to be the most democratically oriented, um, but Chinese and Vietnamese uh, tend to be actually the most uh, conservative. Right. And if you look at many of these groups, they're actually more conservative than Jews who tend to be, uh, you know, three quarters uh, Democrat leaning. And, you know, because of the turn since BLM, there have been some chatter about East Asians becoming more conservative, you know, similar to, I'm sure you remember the, the rooftop Koreans during the LA riots, um, defending their businesses and actually becoming somewhat of an American symbol of, you know, defending your private property and, and capitalism. So one question that many people wanted to know when I asked them about what I should talk to you about was why, you know, let's say that there was a group of 2 million Jews that needed to leave or wanted to come to this country for some reason, and you knew that they were going to be democratic leaning, would you have the same attitudes towards that attitude towards liberty as you do towards East Asians? Well, I mean, the Jews came a long time ago into a very different climate. Okay. And um, made, many of them were very liberally loving people. I mean, I come from sort of working class, one step above working class Jewish at contingent, which came in the late 1800s, early uh, 20th century, tended to be very, um, very liberty loving, a very pro American, very patriotic. But then they were expected to be because there was a strong ethos of assimilation. However, things have changed with Jews. I mean, Jews moved into because of their kind of intellectual bent and their abilities. Um, they moved into the professoriate, into opinion shaping institutions and roles, and uh, they became much more left leaning. 
Jews have always been attracted to these sort of utopian socialist um, co creeds and codes. And the intellectual class of Jews is especially so. And they have, um, you know, Jews have changed. Their, their, uh, their politics have changed. Now, there's some suggestion that they're changing back as they're losing status. Uh, Eric Kaufman has written about this. So it's a complex and dynamic situation. Um, but, you know, I'm very mixed. I'm 100 percent Ashkenazi Jewish. I'm very mixed on the legacy of Jews in this country. Uh, it's a little bit like Asians We've contributed tremendously uh, to the intellectual life and scientific and artistic life on the one hand. On the other hand, they brought in all, and disseminated all of these ultra left progressive ideas, which I think have eroded much of what is good in the culture and have been a pernicious influence. Uh, I think the influence of Jews is very, very mixed. Um, and, you know, when people say, well, wouldn't it have been great if we had rescued all six million Jews by bringing them into this country from the Nazis? Yes, because they'd be alive. But on the other hand, it would be reinforcing some of these far left trends that I think have been terribly corrosive of our country. I think Jews have actually abused their privileges uh, and their strengths to insist upon their internationalist cosmopolitan values being adopted by everyone. You certainly see it in the universities, right? And I don't think that they should be doing that. I think that they should embody much more of a spirit of tolerance. Um, so, you know, what am I really saying? Because I'm a Jew, I have to endorse everything that Jews do. I have to be pro-immigration, no holds barred. I can't recognize the difference between the early 20th century and what our country is facing today. Absolutely not. All of that is a non sequitur. People do sometimes say to me, well, you're Jewish. You have to be pro-immigration without reservation. Right? And I say, no, I don't. No, I don't, because there are so many things that are different now that are going on that weren't going on before. Uh, Things have changed, and I, I don't was think you might not I'll bite that bullet, Amy. But I'm I'm pleased to see that you have bitten the bullet. Here. Well, no, I mean, unlimited immigration, I think, is not good for our country right now, given where we're at. Yeah, uh, you know, on many fronts, the our economy, our culture, the disenfranchisement of uh, white males, you know, the the kind of despair of. Middle America, the divisions, the, the cultural and political divisions. We I could go on and on of all the ways in which life has changed from the early part of the 20th century. And of course, the ethos of multiculturalism, which is pernicious, which didn't exist before. People accepted that there's going to be a dominant culture, that it's a good thing to have a dominant culture, that people have an obligation to assimilate to that dominant culture. Nobody talks that way anymore, except people on the right. Um, certainly no one in the universities is allowed to talk that way. Yeah. So I, I understand what you're saying about assimilation and how it's become sort of a dirty word. But I'm going to kind of press you on this thought experiment a little bit. So let's say a lot of academic Jews, left-leaning Jews, just Jews generally, secular Jews, were out of this country. I know that many Israelis actually come to this country because Israel doesn't necessarily always provide the kinds of opportunities that they want. Would you restrict immigrations 
immigration from Jews on the same basis that you would restrict immigration from Asians, that liberty is not at the heart of their concerns? Well, I mean, first of all, there aren't that many Jews coming here. This is like a total sideshow. So it's it's not an urgent practical question by any means. I mean, we have a few Israelis coming here because they get better jobs or they think there's more opportunities for research or whatever. I'm not even sure, uh, but I would guess there's just a tiny trickle of Israelis coming here. Um, so it's very hard for me to wrap my head around that. Uh, but I think we are facing potentially very high levels of Asian immigration. Now, Asians are not a monolith by any means, like South Asians are different from East Asians, are different from, let's say, you know, um, Vietnamese and people like that. Uh, but no, I think that it will very much change the character of our country to have a very, very large Asian leadership class. Now, there are some people who think it will make it better. Right. I think it will change it a lot. It's, of course, we've already changed it on our own motion, not necessarily in a positive direction. Um, and take us away from our sort of fundamental commitments as a country and a culture, commitments to uh, the importance of private property, the importance of a market economy, the uh, suspiciousness towards concentrations of power and big government. I mean, you could just go down the kind of list of tenets, um, formative tenets of our country and see how we are just completely drifting away from, from all of that. Uh, and I don't think high levels of immigration from Asia are helping it. I don't think high levels of immigration from the third world are helping it. Yeah. I'm very, very wary of, of high levels of immigration from non-Western countries. Why? Because we are talking here about failed states. We are talking here about countries that are, you know, in dire straits that can't seem to move into the modern era. And it's not as if they have to invent the modern era themselves. We've invented it. The West has invented it. We put the guides on the shelf. All they have to do is take down the book and open it up and follow the instructions. But they can't even do that. Okay. So now sure all that, these sure people are coming from, from the third world. And why do we think that they can successfully support our system when they can't even imitate our system where they are? They don't seem interested. They don't seem capable. Something is stopping them. Now, the standard issue explanation is colonialism is stopping them, right, which is a risible explanation, of course, because they were behind us for centuries before the West ever stepped foot in the global yeah. South or in Africa. So that's a non-starter. But, you know, we kind of don't know what's wrong. So why would we want to do this grand experiment? Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I wonder if you actually, just, just to interject, I wonder if you actually think that there is a tipping point and if the tipping point is already have been reached, right? You're fighting against this, but it's entirely possible that given that we don't respect nationalism, we don't respect patriotism, right. we don't respect liberty, and even assimilation has become a dirty word, maybe it's not going to really be possible to maintain these systems in short order. I mean, I, I myself am not uh, a doomer in that way, but maybe you are. Right. I, well, I don't know that I'm a doomer. I mean, 
I, I think we've done a good job of sort of corroding our own culture and cultural integrity and practices. In part, we've done it in response to this ethos of multiculturalism that we've adopted that both led to the 1964 Immigration Act, which, of course, began all of this this large influx or instigated it uh, and and has ended up generating this very diverse multi, well, I won't say multicultural because that's an ideology, but a very diverse society with people from all over the world. So all of these forces are working together uh, and, and multiplying. And of course, we have the universities and journalism and once again, the the opinion leaders telling us what we have to believe about this and telling us that we have to see it as a wonderful unalloyed good or we're bad people. So we have that. Um, whether we've reached a tipping point, I, I, I really admit that I'm ambivalent about it. I think if we woke up tomorrow morning and let's say had a moratorium on immigration you know, Josh Hammer and I were discussing this because we did a Newsweek podcast. Just close the borders like in 1924, except, you know, for a few Danish rocket scientists or something. Uh, and no one else, you know, it could come. And we tried to work on the people who are here and sort of bring them, you know, up to speed and reintegrate our male workforce, which of course is, you know, at its lowest point since the depression, uh, get people back on track in all sorts of ways. The people who are here, the citizens, the people who are part of our country revived a strong nationalist idea, uh, you know, that the right kind of right leaning thinking took over, um, good leadership, uh, and we made some real changes that we could still salvage the place. I really do yeah. believe that. But, you know, maybe would, if that's would, just would... fantasy land, too many things would have to change. You know, I grew up in the 50s and uh, the 60s in upstate New York. And frankly, I always, my mind always travels back to what life was like when I was growing up. And I think, that is how things should be. I mean, all across the board, I was recently discussing sex education with someone. My view is that sex education should be banned from the public schools. Uh -huh. No, zero sex education ever. Like maybe a little bit of plumbing. Well, that would be very good for pronatalists, wouldn't it? <laughs> In senior high school. You know, well, the notion that, you know, not knowing about how babies are made causes babies to be made is, is itself a kind of, you know, popular lefty trope. I'm is really, that, I mean, I, I think we should return to this at some point. Cause I, I have just a lot don't more believe because none of the girls I knew got pregnant. And if they did, you know, nobody knew about it. I mean, the, the fact is that ignorance doesn't necessarily lead to higher rates of pregnancy. It's it's just this understanding that has no evidence behind it. I'm not trying to make okay. fun of you. All right. But so this is this is very interesting. Um, I actually think I, I have done a dive on this data at one point. One interesting thing is sex education has some influence on the rate of teen pregnancy. But you know what has a much greater influence on teen pregnancy? There was an MTV show called 16 and Pregnant. Right. 
and somebody did an analysis of whether or not it aired in in specific uh, counties and where it did air, uh, young women were much less likely to get pregnant. Um, It just seemed very, just it's it's puzzling to me that so many people can manage to get pregnant now without any kind, uh, you know, you can look up all kinds of things online. It's very easy to figure out how to not get pregnant. Um, But I do think that, some kind of incentive structure is is necessary because people who don't have any forward thinking people whose frontal lobes are not totally developed and you know one other thing about the 1960s is the age of um reproductive fertility the age of fertility was later than it is today so i had my first period when i was 14 that was considered incredibly late now young women have periods when they're nine or ten years old and they're able to get pregnant if you look at hunter-gatherer societies um, there's a huge amount of time where young women can have sex uh, when they're teenagers and do experimenting or whatever they're doing without being able to get pregnant. Women can at the earliest, because of their fat reserves and their nutrition, get pregnant at 18, 19, or, or 20. So this is a mismatch, I think, between the modern environment uh, and and even necessarily the era in which you grew up in which um, you were seeing young women not getting pregnant. Well, I mean, all of your observations are interesting, but I think you're making it a little bit too complicated I mean, I remember, and I, my parents were not upper middle class by any means. They were Jewish, so maybe that's sort of makes them special in some ways. But the no, I mean, respectable girls in high school did not have sex. That that's period. I mean, it just wasn't questioned. You know, uh, we were terrified of having sex and getting pregnant. This is like the worst thing that could happen to you. It would derail your entire future. It would bring shame on your family. It would be a catastrophe, literally a catastrophe. And um, any momentary temptation you might have or attraction wouldn't, you know, wouldn't sway you. It certainly wouldn't sway me uh, when I was a teenage girl. So, you know, that was a whole different mentality. Now you could say, well, that's a mentality that's hedged around with fear and stigma. And I say, yes. Bring it on. Yeah, abortion was illegal when you stigma. were. They <laughs> abortion was illegal when you were a teenager, was it not? No. Um, when I I went to college in seventy one, and Roe v. Wade was seventy three. So okay. I mean, now in New York, it may have been legal anyway, but you know, abortion was not even a word I heard when I was so in you high think school. That shame and terror should be normal emotions around having casual sex as a teenager. Well, I mean, having experienced those myself and come out reasonably well, I know some people would disagree. I was not, you know, traumatized for life uh, because of, you know, my uh, wariness, great wariness of getting into that situation. It's hard for me to think about it that negatively. What I question is the notion that that stigma and trepidation and fear and a desire to achieve respectability are somehow that they have some permanent traumatizing negative effects on people's psychology and their emotions. And I would, I would just question that premise. Um, But definitely that is what is believed today. You know, that, girls should never have to experience those negative emotions. They should always feel good about themselves. Uh, And we certainly never assumed that. And 
you know, we were reasonably happy in my high school. I went to a big, uh, small town high school uh, and had a good time and did all the sorts of things that high school kids did. I'm sure there were girls at my school who had sex. Um, it was very much looked down upon as kind of a day class A mm -hmm. thing. So there was a class element to it. Uh, so I, I think I would agree with you. That, and we didn't that feel it as a sacrifice. I did not experience it as a sacrifice. It was sort of a momentary passing deprivation, I suppose, in that you weren't able to do what you wanted to do. But, you know, mostly it was what the boys wanted to do because of the difference between boys and girls and teenage boys and girls. I think for girls to, for young women to come into their sexual prime, it, they, they, it happens when they're a little bit older. One thing that I think is a good development that's happening recently is this movement of women who are considering themselves neo-traditionalist, or even, as I've heard one woman, Louise Perry, say, neo-prudes. So women who say that men and women actually have very different attitudes towards casual sex. The risks of casual sex are extremely asymmetrical for men and women, and not necessarily endorsing shame and terror, but saying that saying that casual sex is an unalloyed good is a mistake. And it's not just a mistake because of unintended pregnancies. It's a mistake because it often makes women feel bad because right. it's not women's best, you know, best reproductive strategy, best romantic strategy, best life strategy to have tons of casual sex because it will often not make them feel happy. It makes men feel happy. And, you know, I've even heard of this idea that casual sex is, you know, resurgence or the, the incidence of hookup culture is actually a form of patriarchy because it's something that men want and that women uh, think they want, but they've actually been fooled in some way. What would you say to those kinds of conjectures? I, I mean, I am totally on board with that. I think one of the pernicious effects of, you know, feminist ideology and of, you know, gender sameness, uh, you know, well, feminism is sort of this hot mess of, of different, uh, different propositions and, and contradictions, of course, but one is uh, there's one sexuality and that sexuality is male. I mean, that is the proposition behind the hookup culture, behind uh, these online dating sites. Like, um, I don't even know the names of them. Um, uh, the one where you swipe left and right, whatever. Tinder. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, that, that notion, which strikes me as just utterly preposterous now, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, women who are, we used to call them nymphomaniacs. I mean, that there aren't women, that's a nice 1950s term, oh, who love to, you know, have sex with a lot of different men. I, I think those women do exist. Do I think that they are the predominant, you know, type? No, no, I do not think that at all. I think women are cautious, you know, well, you're an evolutionary biologist, you know, Women are more cautious, more picky. They're that way for a reason. These are, you know, on average, on average, uh, they enjoy sex in the context of emotional connection. They don't necessarily enjoy it without that emotional connection, whereas men uh, are very different in that respect. I mean, I have male friends uh, who, you know, have told me, and one in particular who I like a lot, who says, I would just screw anything. It really wouldn't matter. Yeah. I, you know, anything like uh, three and above on one to 10. 
And I just looked at him like, okay. Uh, I certainly never felt that way. Um, at my college, who used to always say, it doesn't matter when you're in the middle. It doesn't matter how attractive she is when you're in the middle. Well, right. Very crass way of saying it. Okay. So you have two daughters. I have a daughter. I'm curious. Did, how did you educate your daughters or what did you tell them about sex and marriage? And, you know, how did you obviously your grandma and your daughters are, I don't know if they're uh, married or, or divorced or whatever, but did you think that you had some influence on them or do you think that they just inherited this caution and prudence from you. My older daughter is married. My son's about to get married. And I know my younger daughter would love to get married. She's very much uh, trying to find someone to marry. Um, I was uh, very, I didn't talk about it very much, but I was very, very candid about my views. I didn't hold back, you know, this progressive parenting fashion of, well, don't, you know, don't tell them what you think and don't tell them what you think is good or bad. Don't approve or disapprove because that will alienate them. I did never subscribe to that. My view was, you know, I am going to give them the benefit of my, my wisdom and experience and my opinion. It's their life. If they want to screw it up, that's their prerogative. They don't have to do what I suggest, uh, but I'm not going to pull back. So I said, you know, marriage is really, really important. Having children is really important. My husband, who's a man of few words, once said, few are the women who could reach the end of their life childless without regret. Mm -hmm. That was his sole sentence about it. And it really just says it all, I think. Um, so these are really central and important things to a happy life. Um, male and female sexuality are different. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Uh, don't get pregnant. God, do not have a child out of wedlock. I mean, my older daughter was telling my younger daughter this. She said, yeah. I just want to tell you one thing. Don't get pregnant. Uh, they, <laughs> so I was hearing my words come back to me. Um, and my son is very traditional and he he kind of knows what time it is and he gets it. Uh, so maybe I was a countercultural parent very much that way, um, because I had strong opinions and I didn't hesitate to express them. Now, what I didn't do is, you know, uh, well, I was lucky in that my kids are really sensible and really based and grounded and they're great. Um, I don't know what I would have done if I'd had a child who, kind of went off the deep end or whatever. I, I don't know. That's a real problem. You know, Charles Murray says, it's one thing to draw a line. That's relatively easy. But when they cross the line to know what to do when people cross the line, that's hard. Yeah. I think that the, the, the new parenting mantra is that you should show your children unconditional love and showing somebody unconditional love goes so far as to not even tell them what conditions you would appreciate, you know, what you might want them to do with their lives and what you think are the strategies for success. So there seems to be this unruttered finding your identity, finding, you know, experimentation that's happening right now where parents won't even say, look, you know, I think if you did something differently, um, but I know my parents would have been thrilled if I had married my first boyfriend and I would have been absolutely miserable with him. So, uh, you know, but they, yeah, were, sure. they didn't pressure I mean me to, to do that. Right. 
Well, this unconditional love thing is very tricky, right? That's that's just one of these protean phrases because it can mean a lot of different things. I mean, on some level, we do give our children unconditional love. But on the other hand, all we all we need to do is say, look, there is better and there is worse. And there are many ways to live a life, you know, too narrow a, a view, too tight a notion of what a worthwhile life is, is no good either. You have to be open to your children, you know, taking many different paths, as long as they're constructive paths. Um, that, that's all. I mean, I have relatives, you know, I have a lot of relatives in the medical field. Uh, and one senior person who essentially communicated to his kids, there's only one worthwhile thing to do, and that's to be a doctor. Well, you know, I was puzzled by this. It's like saying, well, we all have to be taking in each other's laundry, you know. Why are we keeping each other, uh, each other alive for? What, I mean, just for the hell of it? Uh, <laughs> no, there has to be other things in life that we keep people alive for. Health is in service of other goals, uh, other aspirations. So, you know, when your child or children get older, you will realize that they are not a version of you, that they have different interests, different orientations. Uh, my youngest daughter is very interested in dra the dramatic art. She was headed to being a, a director, a successful one in New York when COVID hit. You know, this is something that never attracted me. Uh, that I was never the slightest bit interested in. And so you see your children manifest interests that you don't have. And that's part of the fascination of being a parent. Yeah. You know, of how did that happen? Um, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm curious because a lot of women in your station are either childless or have one or two children. Why did you have three children? Did you intend to have three children? Tell me a little bit about how you planned your life around around children and family, because now women are you know freezing their eggs. They're um, most women who end up childless didn't intend to; they just didn't find a partner in time. There's right. this you know huge conversation in feminist circles about what to do, and it's just it's very confusing. And, and I'm just curious what your advice would be. Well, I think this is very, very difficult. Um, I do feel bad for people who have trouble finding partners. I think. This is a whole nother topic of what, why are there so many impediments to people getting together? Uh, and, you know, I could talk for a while about that. Um, and it's sad, but I, you know, I would have probably had more. I would have had four. I got a very late start. My first child was born when I was 37. Uh, yeah. I was very, very lucky in being able to have two children in my 40s, which many people cannot do. And that was just, you know, a stroke of luck that I was fertile for longer than the average woman. So I was very grateful for that. Uh, if I had gotten an earlier start, I probably would have had maybe four kids. Um, my sister-in-law has four kids. Uh, my, my husband's family, they have a lot of kids. Um, I think, because even though I, I was a very career-oriented woman, I will confess that uh, more than most. I really was, I had a very strong traditionalist streak. Maybe it's because I'm fundamentally conservative in the way I look at life. Uh, maybe it's because I was raised in a pretty devout Jewish family, although there are lots of people raised in devout Jewish families who go completely off the deep end. 
uh, in the opposite direction, of course. So that's not very causally uh, cogent. Um, but I just never doubted that it was really important as a woman, as a person, to have children, that that was just so completely central to what it meant to be human. I just cannot imagine being a childless woman. It strikes me as just this horrible misfortune. It is, it is such a vital, important part of the human experience. And I remember when each of my children was born, the, the pure elation of it, of having that newborn child, of hearing the first cry of your child, of going into the nursery and picking up your child in the quiet of the night. It, there's nothing like it. it. I'm getting kind of emotional about it, but I can't imagine missing that. Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 I've only have my daughter's just turned one. I'm having another daughter in August. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I definitely could have seen my life without children. Um, and I was actually building my life in such a way that I thought I would be satisfied without them. Uh, one thing that's, that's interesting that you're talking about is, you know, being somewhat traditionalist. Uh, one question is, I know a lot of people who are Jewish who think it's their duty to the community to have children because of the Holocaust. Is that anything that you experienced? Well, my, my family was from uh, Russia and uh, Romania and therefore was not and came over before all of those unfortunate events. So we really had little to do with the Holocaust. I would say that more influential for me is the concept of the covenant, the bris, which actually has um, a variant in conservative thought. So if you read Edmund Burke, he talks a lot about the ties of gratitude and obligation that connect past generations to future generations and how important that is to the human experience that we have the proper level of appreciation and gratitude for those who have come before, who have bequeathed to us all of their, uh, their achievements, uh, their inventions, uh, the civilization that we enjoy, right, through their efforts and through their sacrifice, and that that generates in us an obligation to preserve, protect, and defend all of that, and then pass it on to future generations. That tie that binds us, that runs through the generations, um, is so incredibly central and vital. He says, without that, without the gratitude, um, without the obligation, we are like the flies of summer. I have my students read that passage, and then they, for the rest of the semester, they talk about the flies of summer, uh, which is, but yeah, we are least transient, meaningless trifling things our lives so you wanted to bequeath to your children like a good life and also the gift of the civilization that you're helping to uphold is that yes and i mean i talked about it all the time i i would uh i would speak to them we would discuss at the dinner table you know all of the great achievements of our culture of the west uh i would um i would talk to them about things like modern obstetrics, you know, <laughs> the fact that women used to die like flies in yeah. childbirth and infant mortality was 
50% or more and how a handful of people, men, white men, not to put too point a point on it, uh, changed all of that. And how remarkable that is, how grateful we ought to be. Uh, we would we would talk about that sort of stuff all the time. And now talking about that stuff is a microaggression. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, my, uh, someone I know at the medical center tried to give a lecture about cancer therapeutics and made the mistake of putting up, giving a little history, putting up the pictures of the guys who invented chemotherapy, like invented it before they invented it. Cancer was a death sentence for everyone. And this only happened, you know, in the last century. Uh, and told them a little bit about, you know, Sidney Farber and all of these very creative people, bold and creative people. And at the end of the semester, the critique was, uh, that was just so uninclusive, that lecture. It was so traumatizing and, and exhausting that we had to look at that parade of white males. And the people in charge of the course told him he had to take that stuff out. He had That's, to take that stuff out of his yeah. lecture. People That's inclusiveness today in our university. Okay. I think this race consciousness has really taken away something that people don't talk about much, which is gratitude, you know, gratitude for civilization, gratitude for technology. It's difficult to feel grateful for people that you see as oppressors. People or maybe even just recognition, status. maybe yeah. even just the understanding of how this stuff doesn't create itself that, you know, people uh, go out of their way and, and put a lot of effort into making, creating these inventions, these innovations that we now enjoy. Um, so, yeah, I like to think that I had some influence. This is the way I talk to my students. This is part of the reason that I'm in trouble and that they're trying to fire me uh, because you're not allowed to talk that way. That's that gets me labeled a white supremacist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more question about, you know, marriage and, and family and, and mate choice, because I don't really, I think I've ever heard you talk on these topics is, uh, you know, you were a very ambitious woman, brilliant woman. Was it difficult for you to find a man that fit your standard? And, you know, nowadays it's very difficult for ambitious, smart women to find men uh, who meet their standards. I ended up marrying somebody much older than me. I don't know exactly how you manage that? Well, uh, <laughs> my husband is sort of a, a very private kind of guy, so I'm not sure that he would want me talking too much about this. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's always difficult to find someone who, you know, is right for you and is going to uh, stay the course, but I think you have to know what you're looking for. Um, I think the online dating scene has really made it a lot harder because, uh, it, you know, creates this paradox of choice. There are too many choices. It encourages women, I think, to look for all the wrong things. Um, and, you know, to sort of have a checklist and rank people. And it also, I think, eliminates the quality of serendipity. Uh, when you have this this checklist of, of what what it is you're looking for, uh, then you 
you're really not open to being surprised by something that doesn't quite fit the bill. Now, on the other hand, I would say there are certain non-negotiables, right, that people ought to be looking for, like someone who's honest, um, someone who is strong, someone who uh, can endure um, hardship. I think if I had to come up with one quality that you really wanted a spouse, I would say toughness, mental toughness. I think one of the problems is we are promoting a kind of psychological fragility in young people, which is very hard to reconcile with the ups and downs and challenges of marriage because there will be rough times. Absolutely. That is inevitable. You know, I said to my son, there are only five words that you need to say in your wedding ceremony for better or for worse. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, with emphasis on the for worse, uh, to weather those ups and downs, um, and, you know, mental stability is so important. Uh, and yet we're not seeing a lot of mental stability in young people today. It's, it's also difficult, I think, because people are stratifying their partners on politics, right? It's, it's much more difficult now than ever before for a Republican and a Democrat to get married. Yeah, that's and, ridiculous. Oh, it's terrible. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, conservative people you know, conservative people are the most likely to get married, to stay married, to be interested in marriage and family. And so if you're totally cut off from anyone conservative as a life partner, then you are probably going to be on the apps for a long time. Yeah. And I think educated women, you know, who are just so all in ideologically, uh, and they've been taught that the definition of a good person is caught up with your politics, which of course is something that, you know, my parents would have laughed at. Uh, that was completely foreign to their generation, um, that your political proclivities had anything to do with whether you were a, a good partner or a valuable person or whatever, but now it's dirty gur. I think a lot of these educated women who are overwhelmingly lefties, we know that, they're kneecapping themselves in terms of finding partners. You know, I mean, there are just, first of all, there's a paucity, there's a shortage of men, uh, college-educated men to begin with, um, heterosexual men who really want to start families and get married and, you know, are traditional to that extent. And then on top of it, they've ruled out everybody who's right of center uh, and, you know, who's left. Um, makes it almost impossible. I see this with my own students and it's, it's really sad. There are great men out there who are conservative, uh, would make great husbands, but you know, they just turn up their nose at them because, yeah. oh my God, you know, they might've voted for Trump. Um, and that's it. They're dead in the water. So this leads us kind of into easily the, the feminization of the academy. I've heard you talk about the feminization of the academy and you are having these problems in part because the standards of the academy have changed. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as the feminization of the academy? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, have, I've been talking about this for a while, but Heather McDonald has just written a wonderful essay in City Journal about the feminization of the academy and all of the ways in which it has changed 
uh, the way universities are run and their priorities and the like. Um, well, when I, I mean feminization, I mean it both demographically and attitudinally, because I think the two work together. Demographically, more and more women have gone into academia or are now in the professoriate. They are peopling this vast bureaucracies um, that are now running the universities, including the diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, establishments uh, that have kind of taken over, right? And of course, those establishments are there to protect the psychological well-being of the student. So the demographic shift has accompanied, and, and of course, more and more students are female. In, in many universities, it's females way outnumber men. At the top of the food chain in the uh, very selective ivies, they've more or less been able to keep it 50-50 because they have such a deep pool so they can manipulate the pool to get the right ratios. But once you get down below those schools, it becomes harder and harder. But anyway, the demography is now reflected in the ideology. The two work hand in hand. So instead of the purposes of uh, finding truth, generating new knowledge, preserving old knowledge, um, debate and discourse uh, directed at trying to, uh, to, to achieve all of these purposes, right? Um, we have, as the paramount value of the university, protecting the safety and the emotional and psychological well-being of the student body. And those goals are simply incompatible with the old traditional goals of the university. They cannot be reconciled because when new knowledge is generated, when hypotheses are being considered, when facts are being generated and confronted, people will inevitably have to deal with uh, some unpleasant matters, right? The world doesn't always conform to your ideal, your fairy tale ideal of what it should be. And of course, where the chickens really come home to roost are the issue of group differences, racial differences, uh, racial achievement gaps, uh, various discrepancies and disparities in our society. So race is kind of the third rail and the hot button issue, but of course everything's been racialized. So it's impossible to even get away from that stuff. Then there's the whole gender issue. Um, and, and so we've had just like a complete topsy turvy reversal of what the university ought to be about. I call it the ethos of the kindergarten and the nursery right? These feminized values that say the most important thing is that everybody feels good about themselves, that nobody is traumatized or hurt or psychologically, emotionally harmed. That, that is priority number one, right? Yeah. Well, it never used to be that way. And it is the women, including the mean girl gynocracy, uh, in the name of progressive values that is enforcing this and they're enforcing it nonstop. It's so interesting that this sex, you know, the, the, the sex differences that people don't really want to talk about, uh, you can actually consider them as the cause of these different, what you call DIE initiatives, right? How everything has changed in the university can, can be traced back 
one thing that I've noticed about you and, and some other women who are prominent and controversial is that you are different in terms of sex differences. That Would you say that you are masculinely minded, right? Would you say that you have a, a masculine temperament or a masculine cognitive profile? Well, I would say just as a descriptive matter, if, you know, we recognize that there's a female style, you know, there's obviously a range, there's, there's a spectrum, but there is a female style of, of thinking and of prioritization of values. And then there is a male style. Yes, I would say I'm more on the masculine spectrum um, than, let's say, most women or many women. Yes. Uh, and that enables me to see the flaws of the defects and the problematics of the feminization uh, of the university, um, definitely. But, you know, on the other hand, people are complicated. I mean, I, I am in many ways feminine. The areas that I'm interested in are sort of in many respects, traditional feminine areas. I look at the family. I have studied and written about poverty and inequality, and those are things that women tend to be attracted to. I'm not uh, someone who's sort of an instrumental thing person, like highly technically oriented men are, although I did study science uh, and, and liked math a lot. So, yeah, I'm kind of a mixed bag, but I would absolutely say that my thinking style uh, is more masculine than many women. And is this a source of frustration for me? I mean, after all of these, you know, female emancipation, the feminist movement and everything that has happened, I still see women being women. And, you know, it's okay for women to be women, but it's not okay for women to then take those values and that ethos and export it to an institution like the university, right? that where the paramount values, the most important ones, the ones that will vindicate its purpose are masculine. And I am yeah. disappointed that the men in the universities have not stood up and said, fine, you can come here, you can study here, you can get degrees, you can teach here, but you can't bring this alternative you know, set of priorities in here because it will destroy us as an institution that we have built up over centuries. I would like to see men get up and defend what they've created. It's really interesting because women are so much less disagreeable overtly uh, than men are. I've heard people talk about panels of, of experts at conferences and call them mantles because it's all men on them. And you ask the organizers and they say, yeah, we, we asked 10 women to be part of this panel and nobody was interested. Or you see a panel of women who are all just mutually agreeing with each other and it's very uninteresting. Nobody's willing to start the fireworks that actually make things compelling. And you, I hope you don't mind me saying so, seem profoundly disagreeable in all of the of right course. ways. I, yeah. Well, yeah. And I think I'm fascinated that there's been a kind of, um, role reversal here that men are just being too agreeable. I, 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 they really need to be more disagreeable about all of this stuff. I'm not sure what they're afraid of. I mean, they're trying to please women. They're trying to signal their own virtue of, you know, by endorsing feminist values there. I mean, maybe some of it is just, um, 
you know, sex, uh, what is the term that, that uh, Darwin uses? Sexual signaling or whatever. Selection, uh, yeah. It's the new form of, of yeah. uh, sexual display. Sexual display. Right. We or have you're to showing how progressive you are, showing your sacrifice abilities. Yeah. You're, you're, right. You're we're going to we're gonna go along with your priorities. We are going to be virtuous lefties. We're going to show how progressive we are. Uh, this is the new way that you uh, are, quote unquote, sexy. Actually, it's profoundly unsexy, but never mind. Uh, <laughs> Should we bring back male only universities, Amy? Should we bring back male only universities, men only? Uh, well, I mean, they weren't that bad, frankly, uh, male only <laughs> universities. It is, quote unquote, exclusionary. I mean, I'm enough of a liberal to think that in the name of fairness, and justice. We ought to open our institutions to talent. I'm enough of a meritocrat that mm -hmm. I agree that, you know, we shouldn't arbitrarily exclude women just because there were women. So we should allow them to reach their own level through, you know, their effort and their merits and their talent. I think the problem came with not opening these institutions to women, but once again, you know, I'll say it again, allowing feminine uh, priorities and values to take over. Now, it's hard when you have an academic institution and you let women in and you make them full members and you have a convention for the institution that the members then vote and decide how the institution is going to be run. How are you going to stop the demographic trend from infecting the ideological trend because, you know, women are going to vote for what they think the institution should be like. Uh, you kind of have to do it through persuasion. You have to do it through standing firm and making arguments uh, and trying to convince people that the traditional ways of running these places were better You've got the whole problem of affirmative action, too. That That's like a wholesale assault on traditional standards, meritocratic conventions, old ways of doing things. That's a whole nother story, so that doesn't help. When you put the two together, it's very, very hard to stand firm against all of that. Um, just quickly, Amy, how much more time have you got to talk to us? Um Let's see. Well, like 10, 15 minutes. Great. Okay. Then we'll wind down. I know oh, you wanted to okay. ask me some questions. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about, oh, you'll hear, but we'll, we'll try and get this done in 15 minutes. Okay. So, um, Amy, you tell us a little bit in brief, you know, what's going on and how people can help you if they are interested in helping you with your current situation at Penn. Well, I mean, I'm being, a uh, charge has been brought against me a request for major sanctions because of my so-called behavioral violations. That's just a ruse. I'm being uh, charged because I've expressed opinions that they don't like. They've trumped up a few supposed things I've said to students, but you know they're not plausible or they're false or, the, or they're very weak. I think the best way for people to help me, and there's, there's been just almost none of this, is for academics with tenure who are in a fairly secure position, especially senior 
more senior people to stand up and overtly say that what Penn is doing to me is just absolutely destroying any remnant of academic freedom that the institution or any institution might have been committed to. I mean, this case is a huge watershed. If they win this case and they fire me, it is pretty much a new day in the demolition of any plausible sense of academic freedom. So I think people really need to stand up. I don't know why they're not. I think it's indifference. I think it's I don't know, fear, this is, this is laziness, something, something unbelievable selfishness. Some I, know, I know a lot of academics at the end of their career who have uncomfortable opinions, things they've been sitting on for decades. If you're not willing to talk about it at the end of your career when you have tenure or even just when you have tenure, when are you going to talk about it? And as much right. as I might disagree with some of your opinions, Amy, right, you, but they you, just have you, know, you would think they use tenure for what it's for. Right. The, the young people have been taught forever that the substance of someone's opinions makes them a good or bad person, and that determines their right to speak. I mean, that's just completely antithetical to our whole tradition of free speech, of course. But you'd think that these older academics with their liberal understandings and commitments in many cases would understand the distinction. You don't have to, you don't have to agree with what she says. You don't have to support the substance of what she says in order to defend her right to say it. This is 101. This is fundamental, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But I just... People, people I, have, have lost that distinction, Amy. They think, you know, if, if, if somebody defends you, they have to be on board with everything that you say. Right. And people well, are so afraid of censure when it's just online. You just close your computer, you go take a walk. You know, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Um, except obviously these, these contra- you know, this controversy has come to have real life consequences uh, for you. Um, so, so yeah, th- there are ways to, there are funding pages for you. And you obviously just said, if you have tenure, you know, just say that you support Amy Wax's right to say what, what she feels and, and, you know, her opinions. Yeah. I mean, I have a fantasy that there'll be a petition of, you know, 5,000 tenured professors and, and, uh, university, uh, provosts and presidents and administrators saying, you know, stop what you're doing. This is disastrous. Of course, that, you know, the fact that that isn't going to happen tells you the disaster has already occurred. Absolutely. I'm well, just, uh, we're gonna you know, wind- I'm just roadkill on the road of the culture war. Uh, <laughs> I'm not dead yet, but uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see if they pull back at the last minute, but they will do what they want to do, Diana. It is all about power. There is no yeah. principle left in academia anymore except the principle of the feeling of oppressed groups. That is the highest, the highest priority and the most important thing. And of course that is completely antithetical to anything that, you know, calls itself an education. And it's costing billions of dollars, including a lot of taxpayer money. And it's going to cost potentially the intellectual superiority of the United States. Um, we have some end of episode questions. Uh, so the first one is, who is the smartest person that you've ever met? That's a tough one. Now, if you want to hear our guests' answers to the bonus questions that we ask, then you need to become a paid supporter. And you can do that over on our Substack page for just $6.99 a month or $69.99 a year. I promise you it's well worth it. Supporters also get early access to the podcast and to our special filmed conversations, which go up over on the main channel somewhere over there or down below. The link is is always down below. 
And of course, if you liked this, then you will love our online magazine. You can check that out by clicking the link down below. And if you are so inclined, you can find the links to our Twitter and TikTok. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you in the next one. He's too rational. He's too hung up on rationality because that's not the way life is. But I'm not. That's not a criticism of him specifically. Everything he writes, his ability to, and this is the hallmark of of、uh, smarts, to、uh, synthesize and take the measure of very very complex information. Uh, and data and phenomena is nonpareil. There's really no one who does it as well.、Um, I keep searching, like you know, in Sodom and Gomorrah for the honest man. I keep searching for the lefty who really takes on the arguments and takes them on with honesty.、Um, for nonfiction, one is a completely unknown book.、Uh, Amy, what's your most controversial opinion? Oh my gosh. 